Today on Sagittarian Matters, more bad dog stories with Brandy Taylor. Plus, I take you with me to San Francisco, where I hosted a panel called A Conversation with Women, where I talked to the mothers of underground feminist comics, Trina Robbins, Lee Mars, and Mary Wings. Stay tuned. We're obviously not going to go back, you know, so fuck him. Sagittarian Matters, Sagittarian Matters, what's the When I was 16 years old, I adopted a Beagle Corgi Sharpay puppy from a disreputable Kansas City, Kansas animal shelter. I kept her for 15 years. Her name was Beja Georges, and she was an unpettable pet. If you met her on the street and you were a stranger and you bent at the waist, she would jump at you and bark like this, and scare the pants off of you. A lot of people were very put off by this and would be like, your dog's crazy. But the thing was, listeners, I would tell them not to pet her. But she was weird looking. She was cute, so people would want to pet her. And this cycle went on forever and ever, basically through our whole life together. Today on the podcast, my friend Brandy Taylor from Magic Hour Astrology joins us to talk about when she first met Beja and what voice she thought Beja should have. She doesn't say it in this clip, but I made note one day that Brandy told me she thought Beja's voice was that of Mama Fratelli from The Goonies. That while I was doing a dog voice that sounded more like Taylor Swift or a young teenage girl for my dog, Brandy was imagining her trying to put someone's hand in a blender. After we discuss Beja's physical voice, we are going to talk about dogs and feminism, so please bear with me. I will continue this conversation next week with my guest Chelsea Johnson, where we talk about the manifesto I wrote for my dog when I was 22 called, I Am Not a Stuffed Animal. Anyway, I hope you enjoy my talk with Brandy Taylor. Hi. Hi. Do you remember the first time you met Beja Georges? I do. Um, I believe the first time I met Beja, I came over to your house and I saw one small dog, one furry small dog who I would later meet as Wishbone, basically running into the wall (laughs) 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 repeatedly like... Just over and over and over again, like just sort of like doesn't have any bearings, but like a wind up toy just coming into the wall. And then this like sort of like a really unidentifiable breed, very cute, like a very large head, long body, and then sort of a just a like a looks like a hot dog or like a Polish sausage coming at me, barreling, and then having like this beagly hound dog bark. And I was like, whoa, hold your phone. And um, the thing that I remember the most upon first meeting Beja was like, what kind of dog is this? Very unidentifiable. And also like, how does she make that sound? And then I really associated her with having like, um, like she kind of came on me like like a truck driver, like a Mack truck driver, like a big rig driver. And so if I, and her bark was so loud like that, that I would, I really associated her with like this, like no bullshit, you know, big rig truck driver. And then you pretty, pretty early on and almost immediately told Beja to be quiet and then started talking in what you understood as Beja's voice. (laughs) And... (laughs) And <laughs> it was like the complete opposite of what I was experiencing as <laughs> Beja's voice. <laughs> because you do Beja's voice as like full Taylor Swift, like teen girl waiting in line for an autograph, can't wait to go to the concert, like really um, a whole different zone and persona. And I still kind of, and to this day, I kind of can't even like... <laughs> I don't hear that at all with Beja. All I hear is like, it's really gruff. 
big Mac, I got a big rig, get the fuck out of my way. You know, that kind of voice. And when you describe her as being like, oh my God, like shake it off. I can't wait to get into the pool party. Like I can't even, <laughs> I can't even. And so in my mind, Beja kind of morphed into almost like a drag, like a, to me, I'm like, Beja's kind of like a late forties drag queen who does drag as a teen girl. <laughs> Well, she was so insecure, you know, and, and fearful, which is why she was barking all the time. So I just saw her as that. Yeah. And I think, like, it really made Beja very lovable to me um, to have you um, have that voice, like, right off the bat. I was like, oh, you know, she made her, like, I, you know, even I didn't mind that she was barking at me or that she wouldn't let me pet her or whatever else. Like, I just was like, oh, I get it. It does really personify that, like insecure teen girl feeling but i can't ever get over the visual in my mind of her having like a five o'clock shadow and like pigtails she's like this is like really cool but like i have to go like get electrolysis no lot no lot lizards (laughs) do you remember the first time that she let you pet her yeah, uh, well, maybe not the exact first time, but I think it was one of those sort of like side, like from the side pets. I think that we were both sitting on the couch together, or maybe I was on your bed, and one of those pets where I just sort of like, oh, here, oh, my hand just just happened to be next to your body. Oh, well, my hand just happens to be slightly touching your leg, and it was one of those things where. I ended up petting her, but in the way that was just like very slow. And also like we had to kind of like be around each other for a little while before going for it. I don't think I've ever pet Beja's head. Oh. And I, nor, nor would I ever lean down and like put my arm out because that's not how she, that's not how she rolled. Thank you for respecting her boundaries. Oh, well, I had a, I had a little demon myself, so I get it. So, you know, I, I knew the drill, like. You know, let's let's not let's not kind of like match her energy. Let's just try to be like civil and have some like sense of peace before we kind of proceed. Or before even like she if she didn't want me to pet her, it was obviously really apparent. But I also felt that when I did get to pet her, especially on her body, that uh, there was a sense of accomplishment <laughs> really on my end about like you know we really like we established something. I knew that she, like, okay, she knows I'm safe and I'm not going to, like, violate her boundaries or anything. And um, the it's also just, like, a kind of a sense of pride. Like, I pet Beja. Because <laughs> there's so many people who weren't, weren't in that same camp. So it was I have, nice. I have a question for you. So, I, you know, I made Beja's manifesto uh, when yeah. I was in my early 20s. And it basically, the gist of the manifesto was dogs have autonomy. And hold on, I'm closing the window. And they get to have boundaries. Mm -hmm. Dogs have autonomy and they get to have boundaries. And, you know, we don't actually own them. They're actually individuals who can say whether or not they want someone to touch them. Right. And recently people have been like, oh, that's like feminism. You know, or like for the book, you know, there is like a feminist one to one. Mm-hmm. But you had a dog that had a lot of boundaries. Did you ever see it that way? Or did you ever see like a connection between people wanting to violate your dog's boundaries and people, you know, feeling that flexible around women's boundaries? Sure. I mean, I think that's a, a great correlation. And also, like, to me, I think about like the sort of like um, people telling you to smile, <laughs> you know, or like that's that to me is the same kind of thing of like uh okay well perform for me or oh you look so much prettier if you were smiling or give us a smile it reminds me of that like i just want to pet your dog like oh your dog is so cute let me just you know put my my energy or my um like physical presence even right in front of you and then demand something from you so i think the correlation between those um those two is it, it makes a lot of sense also it feels like you know, feminism too is part of it is having ownership and autonomy uh, in your own body and having the time, having the dog be such as your dependent 
we, the way we kind of treat kids too, like, you know, give your uncle a hug, you know, that kind of feeling. It sort of has a trickle down, I think, in that way. And by giving your dog, it, you know, her own um, sense of making her own boundaries and not pushing her to do something she doesn't want to do, I think is a great job, feminist mom. Thanks. Yeah. I, you know, I never took a woman's studies class. So when I made Beja's Manifesto, <laughs> I wasn't thinking about it as a feminist thing I just I felt but I felt looking back I felt the same kind of fury and like unjust unjust kind of feeling uh, when people would yell that she was crazy after they tried to pet her after I told them not to pet her and she barked right. at them uh, I felt right. the same kind of sense of injustice that I did around feminist issues just because I was like this is I just like why why impose why do you feel right. entitled to touching this thing just because you want to? Right. You could do like a like a dogs unite. <laughs> it was. Well, I remember I, I, I scared all of Portland because people were like, oh, God, I'm a pet petter. I love petting dogs. And like I understand like most dogs are fine with that and are like tolerant of that. And Ponyo, you know, demands it. But I just had a sensitive dog. Yeah. And also like people... I think people have this sort of feeling of like, oh, well, I'm a dog whisperer or like, oh, but dogs like me. Like it's the, they kind of like, it's like a personal situation. But I think just like, that's the, I, I don't know. I think it's just people sort of like ego not wanting to be rejected or them thinking that like, you know, it's like a sense of accomplishment if the dog doesn't like, you know, lunge or bite or bark or whatever. But I didn't, I mean, I think you were actually really tactful with people around Beja. Um I was just like, my dog bites. She bites children. She'll bite your stroller. She'll bite your dog. She bites. You know, just like, <laughs> I was like, do you want your hand? Don't touch my dog. You know? So I was a little more like gruff, I think, pun intended. Um, but I liked your sort of tact being like, well, you kind of like, I, I, I warned you sort of feeling. And then having people make their own decision. I And towards the end, I had to just not say the truth and just say she bites yeah because before yeah. i'd be like oh she's shy she really doesn't please don't bet please don't bet I'm like oh no you can't really pet her she's shy sorry but then they'd be like oh i'm dr doolittle watch this and then she would right. bark at them and jump at them <laughs> and they but with a beagle rawr, rawr, rawr. oh god it almost it, you know what and her bark kind of sounded like she was in pain <laughs> to me like that sort of feeling of like it was very dramatic and like you couldn't quite tell like there was no like definitive end and beginning to the bark it just was like a garbledy raw like marbles in your mouth sort of sound so you're like wait a second what what level of distress are you in ah you know it was it, it made me not want to touch her so if people were kind of navigating that and didn't understand that let's like this dog is obviously like uncomfortable you know that that's their problem. People love people love to impose their own energy and you know control and power over animals, and that's just like I think doing it's it really does, does a disservice to both the animal and the person when people kind of you know think that their boundaries are more important than the dogs. True, true that snapping. Travel with me, won't you, to San Francisco, where last week I moderated a panel with the mothers of underground feminist comics, Lee Mars, Mary Wings, and Trina Robbins. You may be familiar with Trina Robbins and Mary Wings from the podcast and previous episodes, but let me reintroduce everybody in case you don't remember. Trina Robbins was the first woman to ever draw a Wonder Woman comic. She contributed to It Ain't Me Babe comics. She drew that incredible poster that says, Angela Davis, sister, you are welcome in this house. And of course, she is one of the founders of women's comics, which have just been reprinted by Fanographics, and they're incredible. Lee Mars is the author of Pudge, Girl Blimp. She has also written a Wonder Woman comic. She is an Emmy Award-winning animator, and she was a contributor to women's comics and gay comics. Mary Wings, you may know for her incredible lesbian mystery novel series. But of course, she also published Come Out Comics in the 70s. It was a real pleasure to interview all of them. It was at Root Division, curated by Craig Campbell, a former student of mine, and we had a great time. 
I have to be honest with you though, the audio in this is a little funky. It is not incredible. However, it is listenable and there is no better audio of this event that happened. And it was a once in a lifetime event. It felt really special to be able to talk to these women about comics, but also feminism and also Trump and also intersectionality. And so I wanted to share it with you. I hope you enjoy my talk with Trina Robbins, Mary Wings, and Lee Mars. I wanted to read this um, hate mail that you received. (laughs) What did you call it? Some really wonderful hate mail. Dated till the matriarchy reigns again. This is from 1973? I think so. Dear FBI, you can't fool us. Who are you kidding? We see through you trying to undermine the women's slash lesbian movement. We expose you for the dirty, filthy infiltrators you are. This is sent to Trina. You talent faggots, you crew-cut she-pricks, we are disgusted, appalled, and revolted by women's comics. You don't even know that the point of respelling women is to get the men out of it. I hated to see the way you degraded and debased women, especially the racist slurred Harriet Tubman, and the violence was really bad. That story about the Vikings made me want to throw up. At first, I thought it was real women writing the comic, but I know women couldn't do such a venomous, vile publication as yours. I hate it. You must really hate women. I'm so appalled and disgusted that I can't even think of more to say, though I would like to comment line by line. This is a very serious letter. I know you won't print it, but we will, through our own mysterious way, pass the word and let women all over the country know you are infiltrators. I will, of course, not sign my name. We love letters. I bet you do. In our wonderful ways, we will squelch you. Because of your stupidity, your downfall will come and is inevitable. From Moonbeam, Labyrinth, and Sparkling Star. (laughs) What this says is more about them than about us. Uh, You have to remember that this was early days. So the identity search was on in those days. And so people who who gathered together, usually in groups, had a fierce determination to survive and thrive. And what women's comics did was give a window to a great variety of expression. And, and we, we persisted in this. Um, actually, a conscious decision that the Women's Comics Collective here in San Francisco made was to, as near as possible, have half of the pages of every issue be devoted to new work. So we solicited uh, beginners, and, and this was a serious decision because although we were getting better and better in our artwork and our stories, uh, it meant that the books weren't getting better and better. The books always had about half of the pages be amateur beginners. We felt that this was particularly important because there was no room in any of the guys, the underground guys' titles. So we were the only place where women from all over the world who were cartoonists could have their work exhibited. So. We offended everybody, (laughs) everybody. So the variety of complaints were amazing and entertaining, and I'm glad that you saved this example. Oh, it's precious. (laughs) Um, What you pointed out, you know, after our first issue, we said we, we invited people to submit, and very soon we got lots of submissions. And the thing is that I think The women who submitted comments to us did it because they felt safe. The comments by the guys never, they never solicited submissions. Never, never. They were just publishing their panels. Right. They didn't ask anyone else. And, and, you know, the women saw the very first issue of women's, and it was like, oh my God, look, women are drawing comics. I can send something to them, Mm -hmm. and they won't be horrible and insulting, (laughs) you know? 
Well, I have a question. Can you describe for the people who weren't there, what was the independent comic scene, at least in San Francisco, like before you started publishing this? Or at the time, what was what was it like? It was it was a total boys' club. I mean, I came to San Francisco in 1970. In the 60s, I was living in New York, and I was drawing for the East Village Other, um, which was fine, which was fine. It was just the very beginning of comics. And then um, Chrome did Zap One, and it was like an amazing revelation to all of us. Then there's just a handful of people doing comics, and it was like, oh, you don't have to do this for a newspaper. You can actually do a comic book, just like Marvel and DC. That was, it's, it's really funny that none of us thought of that until Crumb did Zap. So I came to San Francisco in 1970, and it was the mecca of underground comics. It was where the comic book publishers were. Um, Last Gasp, um, Printment, Apex. Apex, yes. Um, but it was all guys. There was, in, in 1970, you didn't even come until later. There was me and Willie Mendez, and that was it. We were the two women doing comics. All the others were guys. They published each other. They published their panels. They ignored us completely. They didn't take us seriously. They weren't insulting to us when we met them or anything, but they just ignored us. Um, and that's why I joined at Ain't Me Babe. Um, it was interesting. The, the comic book field was dying. The straight comic books field was dying. And uh, when I uh, came to San Francisco, uh, I was participating in Alternative Features Service, which me and a couple of guys were publishing for underground newspapers and for, <clears throat> for the few, very few, straight papers that would subscribe to us. And we produced... Um, illustrations and cartoons in addition to the articles. So we hired Trina, who was who wanted to produce Panthea. Boom, boom. Um, and, uh, and meeting her, I learned that there was this entire world that I was not aware of, of underground comics. So it seemed, and us launching uh, women's comics, that we could produce comics uh, regularly, and they would be sold all over, and we would all become famous and rich. <laughs> this turned out to be slightly mistaken, um, because underground comics did get into head shops, but not much else. And since women's comics had a great variety of stories, we couldn't get into the women's stores. We actually were sold in women's bookstores. A few, a few. But mostly we would get back letters rejecting us because we had men in the stories or something. So, um, so although the, the women's comics title continued for years, it was mostly because of our determination rather than any um, monetary return. <laughs> um, I just want to say one thing, Lee. I've never really told you how, what it meant to me that you and Mal asked me to contribute to your syndicate because nobody, as you know, was asking me. Except uh, the, the papers were. The underground papers were great. They weren't sexist pigs. But, you know, the, uh, the comic scene was just those horrible guys. Yeah. But you asked me to contribute. You even came to my house once a week for the, for the weekly page that I did. Right. And that meant so much to me. So thank you. Oh, oh. Um, just on the side here, I think it's hard to imagine now how repressive the culture was, how little vehicles there were. When Trina and Lee are talking about this, I mean, there was nothing. And people didn't even realize that they could do something because it seemed, it just wasn't there. We were coming out of the 50s where everything was a job. Everything was straight. 
to be not straight was dangerous, and it was also, I mean, you know, scary. It was heavy. People threw things at you. <laughs> Did you really get things thrown at you? As a hippie, when I when I was first a hippie, it was very very hard. But I think the census, you just we were really. It's so hard to describe that time, mm-hmm. but everyone yeah. was so repressed that when we, it was like a huge uh, vortex of energy. When people started coming out, it was like one mm-hmm. after the other after the other, whether it was deaf liberation or black liberation or whatever. Every, everyone was starting to find it in, somehow, like in, in, within six months, it seemed <laughs> the movements were all The movements were all related, definitely. Mm-hmm. Black liberation, women's liberation, gay liberation, they were all related. And they all happened almost at once, didn't mm-hmm. they? Well, I was going to say, you know, in your comics there, I'm seeing intersectional feminism, and that, you know, is a a buzzword that's come up over the past few years of, like, young feminists, especially on Twitter, are reclaiming intersectional feminism, and they're like, we just made this up. (laughs) And, you know, and people are having me on panels to be like, wow, you're intersectional, what is that like? And I'm like, well, what do you mean? All oppressions are linked, obviously. Mm -hmm. But I really find that you... you Sounds like a new sex preference. A new sex... (laughs) Not another one. An intersectional... um, But you you displayed this very well, you know, in your comics and in the things you published, you know, and in being related to, you know, gay liberation and deaf liberation and black liberation. You had all these things in these comics, and I don't know if it was before your time, but it was before it had a name that was trending in the way that it is now. Can you talk about your feelings about oh, that? Oh, I'd like to talk about that. Please. Yeah. Because I, I'm, I'm a history person, mm-hmm. and I really think we just replicate a lot of things over and over again. And what's curious to me is we revisit these panels. Now, Leslie Lee comes from the very professional comic book, the real comic book world, before she was sucked into the revolution. <laughs> and China took so much shit from these guys. She didn't say that, but she took big, big prejudice. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. But in any event, I'm going back to 1840 here, and what I'm <laughs> is that the women... That's before our time, in case we... <laughs> I don't know. I think it all keeps happening over again. There was a very big discussion, I don't know if you history people know this, between the women's suffrage movement and the anti-slavery movement, which was, what do we do first? Do we go for the women's vote, or do we go for abolition? And it basically That's right. decided abolition. And... But was also happening at that time with spiritualism, with women knocking on tables, because electricity had just been invented, and they saw no reason that if an uh, invisible message could go from Boston to New York, why couldn't it go from New York to heaven? Now imagine this state of mind. They thought this was a reasonable, you know, extrapolation. <laughs> anyway. This was called uh, spiritualism, and electricity was seen as female. So as all these sort of things were happening, it came together an incredible vortex of people, you know, kind of blossoming in this way. You know, and I think we felt that exactly in the 70s. I don't know what the next moment is. That's always my question. But I think, you know, I'm always looking at history, and I'm always looking at the thing that hasn't been done, the thing that's not being said. Um, gosh, there are so many things I want to talk about based on everything you've you've all mentioned so far. Um, I just want to know, like, at the time that you were making comics, you mentioned safety or danger, or getting things thrown at you. It wasn't necessarily safe. Like, if I if I'm reading a comic from the '70s by someone like R. Crumb, I'm seeing women's bodies used as objects in a almost grotesque way, and people of color not thought, almost grotesque, grotesque. Let's, let's, go ahead and, let's, let's cut through the chase and say grotesque, and people of color's More bodies grotesque, yes. used and characterized in I'll say grotesque ways. And so as a a woman or a person of color reading that, one wouldn't necessarily feel safe in that environment. (laughs) But your comics not only jumped into that fray as women drawing comics, but the content was very female and about women owning their bodies. A lot of it is about sex. A lot of it is about, you know, like getting underground abortions or what to do or feeling used or feeling worthless or your worth being tied up in your looks or whatever. But you were doing that in a time where it took a lot of bravery because it wasn't a safe space. So, I don't think we felt brave. We just felt like we had to do it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, it was all about self-expression. Um, we, what's interesting is during those days, 
we didn't know that this was the first or this was the only. Yeah. We just did it. Yeah. Yeah. And in reflecting the times and our relationship to the times, it provided a a huge window on what was happening there. There were we didn't find these stories any place else. We couldn't find them in the magazines of the day. Uh-huh. We didn't find them in the books of the day. So we created these things that were um, from the pain, the angst, the insights that we personally had at the time. This was, it was a, an amazing venue to be able to express yourself mm-hmm. personally and get it printed. And, uh, and, and that in itself was a return. We didn't have good sales numbers or anything, and we sure as hell didn't get paid enough money for any of this. But, but no one did. But, but that was true. No one got paid. Um, and but that, we didn't care if we got paid. No, we didn't. No, we didn't. <laughs> that was such an amazing reward that there weren't any independent... Uh, comics or anything at the time. The underground comics became independent comics later on, but at the time, um, this was it. Um, Nicole, you mentioned um, you started talking about crumb and the, the grotesque representations. Well, you know, there had been a, a mainstream comics like Marvel and DC, they had a code, a comics code. And everybody who did comics for them had to adhere to the code, which was very restrictive. <clears throat> Excuse me. So one of the things about Underground was there was no comics code. You could do whatever you wanted. So what happened, unfortunately, is that there was an enormous amount of hatred of women on the part of these guys. And it really, you know, it came out because they could do whatever they wanted and all too often what they wanted and Crumb was certainly the leader, you know, but all the other guys did it too because it was like almost fashionable was to depict women raped and mutilated and murdered. And, you know, and I, of course, would object. I would say, but this is real. I don't think I even used the word misogyny. I don't think I knew that word yet. I just said this is so hostile to women. And, you know, of course, as a result, because I dared open my mouth, I was called a censor. Um... They didn't really understand that the First Amendment means you can criticize things. Um, And, you know, that's yet another reason why the guys ignored me. And I was very aware of the fact that if I just shut my mouth and was a nice girl, I might get accepted by them. But I couldn't do that. I mean, I literally could not do that. And Mary, did it feel safe for you? Because you were saying, you know, if you came out in your comics, you would never get a teaching job again. And that's real. I mean, I, as a teacher of kids, I have that internalized homophobia that when kids find out that I'm an adult or a, a queer person or that I've ever talked about having sex in public, that I will never get a job yeah. teaching or near yeah. children again. Yeah. yeah, and it's, it's, you know, 2017. So at the time, did it feel unsafe or strange for you to be making gay comics as a woman, which is, you know, even worse than just being a woman as being a gay woman? <laughs> I think going back to what Lee said is we just did it. And part of it was the incredible repression that we grew up in the 1950s, which maybe a few people were convinced, but I didn't know what sexual intercourse was until I was 13 years old. And of I course, said, none of us did. I said, no. <laughs> no. That can't be true. There's no 13-year-old on the planet who doesn't know now. Thank God. And then <laughs> it was a huge to figure that out. And, and I didn't hear it for a while either. And I didn't even hear the word lesbian until I was 19. Oh, wow. That doesn't even exist anymore. So also, when I see young people, they're smarter about their feelings, they're smarter about their identities. We grew up with such repression that when we discovered it's like jumping into warm water, 
You know, you get to see the word, you get to think the thought. You know, and there was huge turmoil going on around us. Fred, I was grew up in Chicago. Fred Hampton was mowed down. There were bloody mattresses hauled out. Mayor Daly's cops were there. It was vocal. It was the woman. Everyone, everyone felt it. I don't know what people are feeling now, but I. It's great that all this openness is there. I don't think people feel any fear at all about publishing and saying anything. Thank you this week to Shoshana Ruth Wechter. Have you ever noticed we don't have ads? It's true. I don't tell you about some gross shrimp scampi dish from Blue Apron. It's because we don't take ads right now. However, we do take tips. Please tip producer Chris. Chris Sutton does this out of the goodness of his heart, and he's expecting a baby. You can send Chris a tip by paypaling hornetleg at gmail.com and say tip Chris or something about the podcast. And then we'll thank you on the air. I'll sing your name if you want. Hornetleg, H-O-R-N-E-T-L-E-G at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. You keep the podcast free and ad-free. Adios. You know, you all have been, you've been around through, you know, lots of different cycles of Republicans being in power and Democrats and Republicans and scandal and repression and you know, everything, um, how, what, are, what are your thoughts about right now? Because, you know, Trina, I had you on the podcast, and the three of you I've talked to at CCA, but these were all pre-Trump. You know, not to say the Voldemorty kind of name of it, but he won't, he won't appear, I promise. But uh, this is all pre-Trump, so how are you faring in the Trump era, and has your experience informed your survival strategies or activism now? Well, we're all the resistance now, aren't we? We're obviously not going to go back. You know, so fuck him. What's <laughs> <laughs> really unusual about this is like he's like our parents. You know, he's such a throwback to an earlier time. Yeah, and my parents were not like that. You know what I'm saying? He's a throwback to the Hugh Hefner era. He's kind of the last hurrah of the white man. That's sort of how I see it. And what's unusual about this? is that every, I mean, everyone that we know is on the same side. There's not yes. this internecine yeah. uh, fighting about, gee, you didn't say it right, I'm gonna write you this horrible letter, and you're not revolutionary enough. Right. We're all terrified. But as Alison Bechtel said, we, don't, we feel a little weird that we're no longer in the revolutionary counterculture. We're cool now. <laughs> it's weird to be cool and be a lesbian. You know? <laughs> but, I always so, thought you were cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the minute after I was so mad at Trina, and then of course the minute we met each other, we just sort of fell in love for a <laughs> each other. But it's interesting because it's a huge resistance now. I mean, you know, for most of the major cities. So it's not like you're the only ones. It's not like you're going to get mowed down by a machine gun or all those things. Although, of course, let's not forget that in other countries it's quite different. But. Well, we, I think we all have a responsibility, and I'm including the audience now, um, to do everything we can to resist. Uh, I participated in every march you can think of since November, and I'm sure some of you were in the Women's March as well. But uh, going forward, um, participating in John Ossoff's campaign, uh, in phone banks and such, I'm participating as well. And what I found is that there's an amazing new group of people that I had never run into before. These are little old ladies and little old men who are outraged. And so for them, this is the first time they've been activated. Wow. Yeah. So I find it very weird but comforting that I have 
the mainstream as my comrades to do all these activities. It's just bizarre. (laughs) But they drink Coke just like I do. They're friendly like I am. So it's kind of discovering the mainstream in a way that I never have before. And although the grassroots level is very far from Washington, D.C., I think the resistance is going to not only persist, but to triumph over the long term. wrote a pamphlet called Making Art During Fascism, and she was leading groups, uh, you know, almost like group therapy for artists after the election, because after the election, artists that she knew were immediately like, maybe I shouldn't be an artist, maybe this is a narcissistic waste of time, I should become a lawyer or a doctor or like, uh, you know, join the human rights campaign or something. But um, we were talking about the value of art during repressive times like this. Can you speak to the value of art in harsh political climates? Or Because all of you... You, I mean, representation Are we is repressed? Right. Huh? Are we repressed? Well, I, I mean, before women's liberation, I think before there were representations I mean, of women taking back their bodies, possibly. We're not repressed, but the government, Trump is representing a view that's about 60 years old. Mm-hmm. He's, 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 he's I would say 100 years old. Yeah, really, he really is. And so we're all unrepressedly saying this is ridiculous. I mean, it's just bad. It's absurd. So I just, I just think he's going to fail. I just of course think, he will. Yeah, he's just going to fail and be swept away, and we got to hang on. I appreciate that perspective. I like that a lot. <laughs> well, as I said before, we won't go back. Once you know what is true, you can't say, oh, that wasn't true, because you know it was true. Simple as that. I'm lucky because my parents were left-wing. They weren't at all on Trump. Um, and, you know, even though, of course, it was the 50s, and there was a lot that they weren't terribly hip about because they couldn't help it. You know, they were that generation. But they were left-wing, and they understood, and they were very permissive. So I'm really, I was born a bohemian, you know, so I didn't have to become one. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but the point is that, as I say, my parents were left-wing. They told me truths. I mean, in bringing me up left-wing, I knew the truth. And how could you deny it? How could you say, no, this isn't right? You know? Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> my parents started out kind of left. Uh, we were living in Montgomery, Alabama, and my dad at that time was a pediatrician, a brilliant guy. He went to medical school when he was 16. World wow. And um, and one day when I was 12, we were doing errands for my mother. And so we stopped, and there was uh, a bunch of policemen uh, hassling a bunch of black guys. And, uh, and we were stopped in the traffic while this went on. And my dad said, you know, all of this has been made up. We have created all of these systems, all of the governments, all of the infrastructure, and, and it can be changed any time. And that stuck with me when he first of all, getting into the military and then getting into the Surgeon General's office and then getting into the Pentagon and then eventually into the Nixon slash Ford White House. He was co-opted by the system. But uh, I stayed just like the little kid in Montgomery, Alabama. So, following his instructions, 
I saw that all of this we have created and we can create it again. So um, I find the current times totally discouraging but also inspiring because we have a challenge to live up to and make real everything we could have imagined before the election, after the election. But you have to actually do things. You can't just be sitting in your house, being upset, yelling at the television, or yelling at your computer, or yelling at your iPhone, you need to actually do things in order for all this to change. In the 70s, we created comics. And that changed eventually how comics, the contents of comics, even mainstream comics. So it's on you guys. <laughs> That's easy, Lee. That's wonderful. <laughs> We're going to be around a little longer. You guys. <laughs> Say goodbye to everybody tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's talk about Wonder Woman for a second. We have so many things to talk about. We're really hopping ooh, back and ooh, forth. But ooh, ooh, yeah. Yeah. I, I almost cried many times. I did cry one time. I thought she was such a mm-hmm. such a noble Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. You know, so respectable. She was not overly sexualized no. in a disappointing way. She was powerful and true. How does, how does it feel to see this? And also, Trina, you were—you said you were the second woman to ever write a Wonder Woman comic. Ah, I didn't write it. I drew you it. drew it. I was the first woman to draw a Wonder Woman comic, but Ramona Fraden had drawn Wonder Woman in Super Friends in 1970. But I did draw a four-part Wonder Woman comic in 1986, and that was like 45 years <laughs> after Wonder Woman was created, and she had been continually drawn by men, of course. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've written some Wonder Woman comics since then and hope to do more. How do you like the new Wonder Woman? Oh, God, I love it. I have <laughs> to say the first time I didn't cry, but the second time I saw it twice. <laughs> the second time I did cry. And, uh, you know, because it's so powerful. Hmm. Well... I feel the same way. I feel like there there was a little bit too many men in the Wonder Woman. But I, I was like, God, why do we have to spend so much time with those guys? It's like I guess to show how noble. It wasn't perfect. Was. Nothing is perfect. I was on a panel at a convention in Sacramento last weekend, and, and we talked. The panel was about the movie, and they asked us to rate the movie. And I simply said, Well, because nothing in this life is perfect, I'll give it a nine and three quarters. <laughs> Well, I thought that the questions in the movie that Wonder Woman asked were the questions that we all should ask about life. Um, it was it was thrilling. Of course, since she following in her tradition, she battles things and having people be blown up and killed is not how I would like to spend time, but, um, but it's understandable. So uh, from things that I've read about how the movie was made and the people I know in the industry who have, who have responded uh, to me about it, um, this was all up to the director and how the director, the choices that the director made. She was a anal retentive director, um, focusing on every little detail, and, and that shows. So it was wonderful. How does it show focusing on every little You just noticed. Well, there, there, were, there were things about people's exchanges with one another. She paid attention to, of course, Wonder Woman's outfit <laughs> and, and even the body language um, between Steve Trevor 
and Wonder Woman. Uh, so it was very impressive. Um, oh, go ahead. There's one over there. Too. Would, oh, yeah. Okay, sure. I would like to point out that in in the seventies, when the Wonder Woman TV show came on, uh, us feminists felt the same way. I mean, Linda Carter did a great job, and, and we just couldn't believe it. It was so wonderful. And right after I think the first one came, the first episode, I came to a women's comics meeting, and Lee, you were there. We were talking to someone, and I heard you say, in your satin tights, fighting for our rights. And I went, yeah, you saw the Wonder Woman. <laughs> the song, by the way, if you've ever really listened to it, it's amazing, because it's in your satin tights, fighting for our rights. And then she says, um, get us out from Wonder, from under Wonder Woman. It's a feminist song. She's we're talking, you know, she's talking to women. <laughs> because I'm a teacher, I want to just cram the takeaways from this down your throat before you do the Q&A. One of them is share your resources. And especially if you are a person who, you know, in any way, shape, or form is marginalized, lift each other up. You know, yes. there's something called shine theory, which is if I shine, you shine. You know, the people around you, it's not taking away from your talent yes. in order to help other people rise. So if you can form a collective or help somebody or give them some tips or show them the thing that you learned, that is, can be helpful for everyone to come up together. You're stronger as a group, especially if you're marginalized anyway. You're stronger as a group coming up together. And that's a huge thing that I learned from this and from this panel. Um, and, you know, share your resources, do what you can. Another, my, my personal advice for young cartoonists, don't start a graphic novel if you've never drawn a 12-page story. <laughs> if you've never drawn a 32-page story, don't bite off a 200-page story. Because, you know, your style might change. You might get sick of it. It's a pain in the ass. It's so boring. It's so hard. It's so hard to do. And you might hate it by the time you're done. With 200 pages can take you years. I found novel writing far easier. <laughs> writing is easier. Writing is far easier. I mean, the drawing looks back at you and goes, and there. And you can just, the words are just so much easier than the drawing. People are surprised when I say that. But I think it is, it, it's one of the, the comic book is kind of one of the highest arts in here with Albert Durer and the amount of information you have to get and keeping the clarity. I mean, to me, what you do, Lee, it's like a Baroque artist doing a whole coffered ceiling, you know? Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton, with assistance by Panyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.